Once again, it's time for Diffusion. And this week, we have more interesting science than you can poke a wad of grant money at. In fact, it's all guys and all guy episode this week. And what better topic to discuss than chicks and why they like us and what they want to do to us. But before that, let's hear the science news with Mark West. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matthew. Scientists at Ohio State University think that they may have discovered evidence that a giant meteorite that smashed into the Earth 250 million years ago could be responsible for the greatest extinction of all time, the so-called Great Dying of the Permian period, which wiped out 90% of marine life and 80% of life on land. Not only that, Dr. Ralph Van Fries thinks that the meteorite could have hit with such an impact that it triggered a process that culminated in the breakup of Gondwanaland 100 or so million years after the impact and formed Australia. The remains of the massive impact are found in Antarctica. And although many experts in the field are excited about the discovery, not all are convinced of Van Fries' theory, or that what they found in Antarctica is a crater at all, let alone one from a 48-kilometre-wide killer meteorite. It's difficult to test these theories, as the crater is two and a half kilometres below the ice. However, Van Fries thinks that the circular land features analysed in the Wilkesland region of East Antarctica suggest a big enough impact to have caused catastrophic damage to the Earth. Volcanologist Peter Whitehead of James Cook University in Cairns thinks that this meteorite discovery could lend support to his theory that volcanic activity contributed to the massive extinction as perhaps the meteorite impact was strong enough to send shockwaves through the Earth and cause volcanic activity on the other side of the planet. The reports are due at an Antarctic science meeting in Hobart early next month. A planet with mountains made out of diamonds may be every girl's dream, but it seems that such a planet may not be so far-fetched. Researchers using NASA's Far Ultraviolet Spectroscopic Explorer have found a massive rotating disk around the star Beta Pictoris that could eventually evolve into a planetary system like our own, except that, as it seems to contain extraordinary amounts of carbon, planets in this system could be made of diamond-like material, but less attractively, have methane skies. The researchers found that the disk contains nine times as much carbon as oxygen, twice the ratio found in our sun. There are a few theories out there that suggest that this is a normal stage that solar systems go through. Even our own Milky Way may have been through a carbon-rich stage before it settled into its current form. However, the most interesting theory is that this solar system simply contains more of these carbon-rich building blocks and has worlds covered with tar and smog and with mountains made out of giant diamonds. Life on such a planet is not implausible, but it would certainly be exotic. This reminds me of when UK astronomers recently spied a stream of alcohol that stretches 463 million kilometres through space. And perhaps that's every bloke's dream. And finally, if you're a leg man, you'll be happy to hear of the discovery of a millipede thought lost for the last 80 years with up to 750 legs. The semi-mythical beast, rumoured to lurk under boulders and roam around on hundreds of pairs of legs, wasn't seen since 1928 until it was rediscovered recently in a ravine in California. 
Ilacme planepes is a species of millipede where the females are only about 32 millimetres long and half a millimetre wide, yet have up to 750 legs. Males are smaller and only boast between 300 and 400 legs, two of which are modified into sex organs. Two sex organs. A single ravine in San Benito County, part of the California Floristic Province, is where these exotic species are found, and this region seems to be a biodiversity hotspot. It was rediscovered by Jason Bond and Paul Marrick of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, who say it is related to certain millipedes found in biodiversity hotspots in Asia, Southern Africa and Australasia. The distribution of this family of millipedes reinforces the importance of the hotspots as repositories of biodiversity. Bond says, although convincing landowners that a millipede is worthy of conversation, it could be a sticky problem. Now, once again, I repeat, it's an all-guy episode this week here on Diffusion. And so what better topic than why girls like us? And yes, face it, why wouldn't they? Ian, what have you got for us? When you see someone you're strongly attracted to, what's that first signal, that first sign of desire that you feel on the inside? Perhaps you feel butterflies in your stomach, or a warmth rushing up, or you even blush. Scientists at the University of Chicago say that these signals are messages from your unconscious mind to tell you the secrets hidden in a man's face. Heterosexual women not only judge whether they want this man by the look of his face, but also whether they want them for a long time or just a good time. 39 male students were recruited from the web and paid $10 to participate. The testosterone levels in a saliva sample were used to measure their objective masculinity. This is more accurate than the controversial finger-length ratio used in economics departments. The theory is that for evolutionary reasons, women prefer more masculine men for casual sex and child-friendly men for relationships. Theory goes that for a healthy baby, good genes are enough without good fathering skills if you can get someone else to help you raise the child. So men who are detected as having high testosterone are good enough for a short fling in evolutionary terms. Men who like children were expected to be selected by women as more suitable for long-term relationships because they'll contribute to good parenting as well as contributing good genes. Half the men engaged in a five-minute conversation with a female research assistant during a waiting period while the controls waited alone. Participants then had their photo taken while being asked to look straight into the camera and keep a neutral expression. They finished the study by completing a written survey that also tested their interest in infants. They showed them ten pairs of pictures. They were asked to choose between a picture of a baby's face and an adult's face. Speaking with a woman before the test didn't affect the men's interest in children. There was also no connection between their testosterone levels and their interest in babies. The women rating the men's attractiveness were 29 undergraduates who were getting course credit instead of cash. The men's hair was hidden by an oval frame so that only their faces could affect the women's judgement. They rated the photos twice on a scale of 1 to 7 compared to average. They were asked to rate them for likes children, masculine, physically attractive and kind. The second look, they were given the instructions, now please rate each man's attractiveness as a short-term romantic partner for a brief affair, as a long-term romantic partner for a committed relationship, and please remember you're relating relative to other men, so rating a four indicates he's about average, 
One, he's far below average, and a rating of 7 means he's far above average. The results showed that the women were very accurate in reading both the masculinity and the interest in babies from men's faces. They had five women judge how happy an expression the men had in the photos. The men judged to be happy despite their neutral expression were also the men who scored higher in the interest in infants test. The judgment of which men were happier wasn't correlated with their testosterone levels, nor were the men rated as more masculine looking. The men weren't actually asked how happy they were. Men who had the conversation with a woman before the neutral expression photograph was taken were judged more often to be men who liked babies, even though the conversation didn't affect the men's real preferences. There was no change in either rated masculinity or actual testosterone levels between the men who talked with a woman and the men who hadn't. On the second test, women consistently rated the men they judged as more masculine for a short-term fling, and the men they judged that liked children as suitable for a long-term relationship, even when physical attractiveness and kindness were held constant which seems to validate the evolutionary psychology theory. The men who actually liked children were also rated as being happier, despite deliberately having a neutral expression. It could be that looking at the pictures of babies made them happier, and this came through the photos, or it could be that the women who detected their interest in children somehow projected the happiness onto their faces as an unconscious signal to themselves. The take-home message from this study of 29 women seems to be that women do judge men by their faces and they can trust the accuracy of the masculinity and interest in children that they read there. We don't know what cues they're picking up, and neither do they. For men, the only wiggle room seemed to be a small increase in women's attraction to men as a long-term partner if they've just had a five-minute conversation with another woman, which matches earlier studies. All instantaneously from just looking at his face, even before you've heard his voice, with none of the complexity about what you actually say and do together. Yeah, right. They almost had me, but I don't buy it. They have good science here that shows that women can accurately read men's interest in children and testosterone levels, and this is a strong predictor of how women fantasise about men just from seeing their face. However, the researchers didn't follow what happens after the couples meet and the man actually opens his mouth, and the couple get to know each other and check each other out. I suspect if you followed the meetings, perhaps some of the women may find themselves enjoying a long time with a guy who is just supposed to be a good time, and vice versa. The initial attraction might be in his face, but perhaps his face isn't the whole story. I'll let you know as I continue my research in the field. And thanks for that, Ian. But coming up now, we've got a bit of the Karma Collection. Well, I look at it myself as uh, the beginning, really, of, a, of an exploration. That's the reason we're exploring. You don't know what you'll run into on an exploration. What the sky looks like, what the stars look like... Uh, Do they still twinkle or are they a steady light when you get outside the atmosphere?
Once again, that was a bit of exploration from the album Karma Collection. Now, from the reasons why women want to keep us around, or not, as the case may be, to why they're interested in, the first, in us in the first place. Mark, what have you got for us? Looking good is important to a lot of people. Gyms, cosmetic companies, clothes stores and fashion magazines all exist because of our preoccupation with looking beautiful. Indeed, if you were to look at the Diffusion Science team tonight, you'd see three good-looking hunks of man flesh. Damn what straight. Makes, well, that's right. But what makes us so attractive? Greek philosopher Plato believed he found the answer in the 4th century BC and discovered this candidate in the most unlikely place of all, mathematics. Plato was interested in designing beautiful shapes. As a strange hobby, he used to try and design these weird, weird rectangles and when he, did, when he looked at these rectangles, he found that the ratio of their sides, the beautiful ones, was always the same. It was 1.618. Although this number is nothing special to look at, it has intrigued Plato and generations of mathematicians for centuries. This ratio, 1.618, can be found in many examples of objects that we consider beautiful, from the human body to music, architecture, nature, and art. This number is so special that it has been called the golden ratio. The golden ratio can't be written exactly as a decimal number because it is irrational. It is a decimal that continues on and on without any apparent repetition. The best definition of the golden ratio is it is the only number that when squared is equal to the sum of itself plus one. In 1996, a mathematician called Greg Fee programmed his computer to compute the golden ratio to 10 million places. It took Greg's computer approximately 30 minutes to do this. But there is an easier way to estimate the golden ratio, and that's by using the Fibonacci sequence. This is a sequence of numbers where the next term is the sum of the previous two terms. So it goes like this. 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, and so on. If you divide each number in the sequence by the one before it, the closer you get to the golden ratio, the further you go along the sequence. So the Fibonacci sequence is often found in nature. The number of the number of petals on a flower is often a Fibonacci number. Buttercups have five petals, lilies and irises have three petals, and daisies often have 34, 55 or 89 petals. You might find some Fibonacci numbers in other places in your garden as well. Seeds on flower heads such as sunflowers are often Fibonacci numbers. Patterns on pine cones are often based on Fibonacci numbers. Sometimes these numbers are not exactly Fibonacci. In the case of pine cones, this can be due to deformities produced by disease or pests. In this case, the absence of the Fibonacci sequence indicates that the pine tree is unhealthy. 
In living organisms, it seems the presence of special numbers and proportions has provided some sort of evolutionary advantage. In nature, plants with Fibonacci numbers may be healthier and pest-free. Animals with this, these ratios often appear healthier and more desirable to mates, like us. It may be surprising to know that the golden ratio can be found in the human body. Your hand contains three bones in each finger. The ratio of the longest bone compared to the middle bone and the ratio of the middle bone compared to the smaller bone are both close to 1.618. Another place you will find the golden ratio is in your height. Measure how tall you are and compare this to the distance between your feet and your belly button. Their ratio is close, again, to 1.618. Your face contains the golden ratio. What is the ratio of the width of your mouth compared to the width of the bottom of your nose? How beautiful are you? Some people think that the closer certain ratios are in your body to the golden ratio, the more attractive you appear. Now, the golden ratio is also found in art, architecture, and music. The famous Greek sculptor, Phidias, was known to use the golden ratio in his sculptures of the human body. The most famous Greek building, the Parthenon, is 1.6 times as wide as it is tall. Leonardo da Vinci also used the golden ratio. He would frequently divide his canvas in these proportions. The golden ratio has been used by musicians. Mike Kay, an American mathematician, has examined Mozart's sonatas and found that most of them divide into two parts exactly in the ratio of 1.68 to 1. Whether this was intentional or intuitive is not known. Another researcher, Derek Haylock, found that the famous opening motto in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is repeated at the golden ratio point from the beginning of the song, 32% of the way in. Intriguingly, it's also heard at the golden ratio point at the end of the song, 68% of the way in. But is the golden ratio the key to looking good? No, everyone has his or her own opinion as to what is good looking. Go out and find people and things that you find beautiful and see if you can find the golden ratio in them. But even if you do, beauty still escapes a complete explanation. And thanks for that, Mark. Finding the sexiness in science. It's not just an accident we're playing that particular song. Around Australia, for the last uh, about a month or so ago, there has been a massive debate on how we generate our power. Do we continue on with dirty coal um, factories? Do we rely on wind, uh, solar, or do we go down the nuclear path? Ian, you've been uh, investigating a fair bit uh, down these avenues. What have you found? Well, it's an interesting question that the Prime Minister, who wouldn't sign the Kyoto Protocol and who didn't set any carbon targets for Australia, is suddenly worried about the greenhouse effect. And then instead of looking at solar power, wind power, Mali oil, or any of the hundreds of different alternatives of sustainable and clean energy, he's gone straight for the one that we can mine. Um, so we, mm-hmm. he's asking us basically, look, do we want to stop mining coal? And start mining uranium because coal's pretty dirty 
and uranium's probably cleaner and there's less carbon produced, so obviously it's better. And he keeps asking for a debate in such terms that he's already made the conclusion. But there is a lot less to mine because you use a lot less... To get the, the equivalent power, it takes far less uranium than, than in coal. Is that right? Like I'd- That's exactly right. Um, about 30 grams of uranium will be equivalent to about 30,000 tonnes of coal. That's what I thought like I read huge. recently, yes. But... Um, while the amount of fuel you use is tiny and the amount of waste you generate is tiny for a large amount of energy, the poison, the toxicity of the uranium as you mine it is enormous. Um, particularly with the rules in Australia, the way we're mining uranium here, um, the stuff just is allowed to leak into the environment and it's all very dirty and expensive. And if they did it cleanly, it would cost more than mining and using coal. So it's actually... Dirty and poisonous and radioactive to actually take it out of the ground. It's, it's That's exactly right. You're not just going in there like you would with, like, say, iron ore or bauxite or, That's or right. coal. The stuff is poisonous and radioactive in itself. As it comes out of the ground. As it comes out of the ground, the raw stuff. And then you've got to transport it. So you've got to burn coal and burn oil to dig it up. Yes. And then you've got to transport it, and then you've actually got to purify it. And then having done all that, um, you've got to build a reactor that's safe enough to use sort of in domestic areas where people live. And then at the end of the life of that reactor, the reactor itself is radioactive and you've got to decommission it. And then you've got waste that nobody knows how to get rid of. Yes. But with on the subject of actually building the reactors, there's been a lot of debate recently that says the reactors have to be close to the sea because they need a lot of water for all the cooling. But I've heard about uh, different reactors that don't necessarily need so much cooling. Do you know anything about those? A different design of reactor that doesn't need so More much cooling? More modern, or they still, obviously still need some cooling. But they they hadn't they didn't need as much. Well, this is what I've read. I don't know too much about it. Um, I think this might be a bit of current research rather than actual stuff that we can build right now. I mean, based on current technology, based on existing technology, it's going to take us seven years to get a working nuclear reactor that can generate as much power as a coal-fired really? power station. So we would we would never have one. There's never you're not going to be able to have one that's going to be able to run the the desalination plant, for example, because that that just takes enormous that amounts takes of enormous energy. Amount of not for seven years, uh, and desalination by electricity by nuclear powered electricity is just about the most environmentally damaging possible way of getting water for Australia that is imaginable. The amount of energy that you're using, and the amount of energy it takes to start up a nuclear power plant is quite enormous too. So we've got a very big learning process. There's a there's a ramp up towards any of this. And I think it's ironic that um, we've stopped Mali oil, getting oil from eucalyptus trees, and we've stopped solar, we've stopped, we're slowing down on all the alternatives at just the time we're talking up the mining industry and uranium. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 90 miles a second, so it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. 
I've been wanting to play that one for ages. But sadly, that's to- that's all we have time for in this edition of Diffusion. Warming the seats on this week's episode were Ian Wolf and Mark West. If you'd like any information on any of the topics we dabbled in this week, if you have exclusive photos to sell of Brad and Angelina's baby, or if you think Mark Latham is proof positive of intelligent design, you can email us on diffusion at 2SER.com. This week, Diffusion was produced by myself up here in the luxurious studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. We're also broadcast wherever you happen to be via our podcast. Have a search for us on iTunes. According to the US government's no-fly list, I'm Matthew Clark, and I hope to see you back here next week for another round of science news and views on Diffusion. on expanding and expanding in all of the directions it can whiz as fast as it can go at the speed of light you know 12 million miles a minute and that's the fastest speed there is so remember when you're feeling very small and insecure how amazingly unlikely is your birth and pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space cause there's bugger all down here on earth